This is An Hour with Ned Roram, produced by WNYC in New York. There's only two aesthetics in the whole universe. Everything is either French or German. Blue is French and red is German, and oranges are German and apples are French. Ned Roram, born in Richmond, Indiana in 1923, raised in Chicago, is a composer, author, and wide-ranging thinker. And women are French, and men are German, and straight is German, and gay is French. Roram wrote his first music at age nine. His musical life then took him to Northwestern University, the Curtis Institute, the Juilliard School, and for an extended period, Paris. I can write any kind of music I want, and it's American. It's American because I'm American. Roram has written hundreds of songs for which he's best known, using a variety of English, French, and American poems as texts. And he's written piano and chamber works, symphonies, oratorios, operas, and ballets. He has also written books, 15 of them, consisting of celebrated diaries and essays. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 1976 for his piece, Air Music. Although I admire Beethoven, and at times I can get a little thrill, but mostly I'm bored. His opinions follow on everything, musical and otherwise, in this conversation with music. I'm Sarah Fishko, and I hope you'll stay with me for this hour with Ned Roram. Well, I, I, I hate to begin at the beginning, but on the other hand, I am very curious to know what you were listening to, uh, you know, growing up in the... 20s and 30s in Chicago. In Chicago. I was listening to the, the, the music of my time, and I think I, my education was absolutely right, and I think most education is wrong now, not only for young composers, but for young musicians in general. I'm speaking of serious classical musicians, of whom there are fewer and fewer. My parents were liberal left-winger, as I would say, but not that all that political. They worked with what was called Negro Veterans Society, the NAACP and so forth, and they had a great deal of, of Negro friends, including a pianist, Margaret Bonds. And Margaret was not my first piano teacher, but my first good one. And when I was about 11 years old or 12 years old, I used to go on the streetcar down to Wabash Avenue where Margaret lived in a, in a black neighborhood, there are not that many little white boys in Chicago taking the streetcar into black neighborhoods for a piano lesson on Saturday mornings. And Margaret Bonds played me an awful lot of contemporary music. I had never heard Ravel or Debussy, let alone John Alden Carpenter, who was the rich composer in Chicago who had written a couple of pretty famous ballets. And I made up some little pieces and sent them, recording of them to him. And he answered, I wish I still had those letters for my archives. John Alden Carpenter's Skyscrapers, 1926. Not to mention Stravinsky, that I got onto very, very quickly when I was still an early teenager. Schoenberg less, but I certainly knew Piero Lunaire very, very early.
It wasn't until 1940 when I graduated from high school at the age of 16 and went to Northwestern that I suddenly realized that I was the only musician of my age who didn't really know nothing about Chopin or <laughs> Bach. And all the other young pianists at Northwestern knew all that, but they didn't know anything about contemporary music. I sat down and I learned all 32 Beethoven sonatas well enough to know what they were made of. I learned all the well-tempered clavichord. I learned all of Chopin, which I loved, and uh, decided pretty much what my taste was. My taste has remained the same ever since. That is to say, my taste is French and it's not German. The difference between them is that the French are profoundly superficial and the Germans are superficially profound. The French will take something like in La Mer and you just see a glint for one split second of a wave and the sunlight and then it's gone forever. The Germans are superficially profound in that they will dig deep, but they don't dig very wide. The Be a Beethoven symphony, da 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 da, goes on forever. And as I like to say, a German joke is no laughing matter. From Rorum's three Barker rolls from the 1950s.
how long did it take you to learn all the 32 Beethoven sonatas and all the Bach well-tempered and the Chopin? When I say I learned them, it doesn't mean I mastered them in the sense of playing them for an audience. It took me whatever time it took me. I would simply learn the piece, but I wouldn't learn it in order to master it. I'd learn it and see what made it tick and what, what it was made out of and why it was theatrical or not theatrical. Did you become very opinionated about those composers? I mean, did you find particular sonatas of Beethoven that you much preferred to others, or did you just see it all as a kind of, almost like a single work? I have to say that by rote, I decided that Beethoven was the greatest composer who ever lived, but I never believed it. And if I could spend the rest of my life and not hear Beethoven, I wouldn't find that a loss. There are certain composers who that people love, and I don't get the point of them at all. Berlioz is one, and uh, Bruckner is one. <clears throat> There's other composers like Beethoven that, that I admit his greatness, but it's not my greatness. I don't need it. Whereas the greatness of Ravel, I do need. I'm interested that you you went through this period of investigating this music, playing through it, as it were, yeah. and then emerged from it with this aesthetic. I felt that if I was going to go around being dogmatic, I should know what at least I'm talking about. I mean, I'm a musician, and I want to know what, what the world of music consists of. The overture from Roram's Dance Suite, 1949. spent two years at Northwestern University. Meanwhile, his father, who was in the habit of leaving samples of his son's music here and there, dropped off a few pieces at the Curtis Institute. Roram was accepted immediately and transferred there in 1942. 
my teacher was Rosario Scalero. He was the teacher of both Minotti and Barber, and I found him fascist in the real sense of the word. Uh, he had studied with Respighi. He was fascist in that he didn't let us, in that it was counterpoint and more counterpoint. I'd already had that till it came out of my ears. I wanted to write music. I found all of that restricting and uh, silly. So I left Curtis, and my father was took a very dim view of that, and he stopped my allowance, and I came to New York to work as Virgil Thompson's copyist. And he, Virgil was running the Herald Tribune, and he was arguably the greatest or the most important music critic in the world. Did you go to Virgil Thompson because you were an admirer or because you needed a job, or how did it happen? Well, now that he's dead, let me see. I came up once in February of 1943. The girl that, in whose house I was living with her and her mother said, well, you got to look up Lenny Bernstein when you get to New York. And I didn't know you were supposed to phone people before you go to see them, so I just knocked on his Drop door. Drop by, yeah, and he was there rehearsing his clarinet sonata with David Oppenheim, and he, I was pretty cute, and he asked me in, and I stayed for the weekend, and I would stay at his house. This is five months before he made that overnight famous thing and had became a star, but he didn't change because he was always Lenny Bernstein. And he said, now that you, you should go see Aaron Copeland, so I went to see Aaron Copeland that same weekend, and uh, I had heard that Virgil Thompson was looking for a copyist. So I went to see him, and he talked me into moving to New York. Virgil Thompson offered Roram $20 a week to work for him. He got up at 10 and started dictating over the telephone to his secretary, Julia Haynes. And I was copying his very sparse music in the dining room. So I would hear him running the world of music. Then he gave me orchestration lessons because he felt a little guilty about my leaving Curtis. And in that year, I learned more from him than in all the previous years at the conservatory because he was French. And he told me in no uncertain words how to orchestrate. And since then, I guess I've made my living as a composer, strange as it may seem. From Roram's Violin Concerto, 1984.
Virgil influenced me a great deal intellectually. And uh, he and Copeland sort of ran the... They were like the mother and father of contemporary music. Everybody was either a, a protege of one or the other until Robert Kraft came along and talked Stravinsky and Copeland and all the others to, to become serial killers, as I like to call them. I think he was somebody, but I certainly don't weep tears the way I can with Copeland or with everybody else. Is there music of yours that you feel was specifically influenced by your exposure to Thompson, or to Copeland, for that matter? I very strongly feel that I know pretty much where I stole everything I've written. And I think that nothing comes from nothing. You write in the style of what came before you, and you either go against it or you go with it. But it is incorporated negatively or positively in what you write. That's in a general way. Specifically, you steal from your teachers. Rambeau once said, all art is a question of clever theft. If you're aware of what you're stealing, you do your best to cover your traces. And the act of covering your traces is the creative act. Or take a Poulenc, for example, is the least original composer who ever lived. You can take almost every measure of Poulenc and say, this measure comes from Mazorsky. <clears throat> this is lifted intact from Chopin. This is from Debussy or Foray. You're referring to melodies? Melody and harmony, both. But why does it become pure Poulenc? And that is what Henry James said, and the rest is the madness of art. You can analyze till the cows come home. <clears throat> but what makes it individual is that which you can't define because it's art. And you can say everything about art except the essential. And the essential is there on the canvas or on the page. Next question.
That was from Ned Roram's 11 Studies for 11 Players. You're listening to An Hour with Ned Roram on WNYC. In the mid-1940s, Roram began an outpouring of songs, which established him as America's leading art song composer. During years spent in France and Morocco, he set the words of his favorite poets to music. Poets, if they're still alive, have mixed feelings about their work being set to music, and they're usually a little bit flattered, but poets are poets, they aren't musicians, and they don't necessarily dig music. We need the poets, but we don't have to listen to them, except through the word, through the poetry, but not what they have to say about it. Early in the morning of a lovely summer day, as they lowered the bright awning at the outdoor cafe, I was breakfasting on croissant and café au lait Under greenery like scenery Rue François-Premier They were hosing the hot pavement With a dash of flashing spray And the smell of summer showers When the dust is drenched away Under greenery like scenery Rue François Premier I was twenty and a lover And in paradise to stay Very early in the morning Of a lovely summer When I wrote my first songs as a teenager on words of E.E. Cummings, and they aren't bad, and sometimes I wish I could write songs now as good as the ones I wrote in my 20s, but I've already written them. I certainly didn't think about what is a song in those days. I was thinking about wanting to conjoin the two arts that I liked, which was poetry and music. Later, I intellectualized about it, which I'm doing now, and became dogmatic about things. Margaret, are you grieving over golden grove unleaving? Leaves like the things of man you with your fresh thoughts care for, can you? As the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh. No words of one would leave me lie, and yet you will weep and know why. Now, no matter, child, the name, sorrow springs are the same, nor mouth had, no, no mind, expressed what heart heard of ghost guest. 
blight man was born for, it is Margaret you mourn for. I think that since we are presuming to take somebody else's work and break its back before we reset the bones in, so, in the form of song. We should do two things. One is never repeat words that the poet hasn't repeated, which people do all the time. And in certain cases, as in Handel, it's sort of a convention of the period, and it's with Alleluia or something. And the other thing is I try to heighten rather than broaden the poem. I try to set words at the speed of speech.
Those were from a recording made in the early 60s with Roram at the piano accompanying various singers. The record came out in 62, I think, and nothing like it had ever been done before. An all-song record by an American playing his own accompaniments. You're listening to An Hour with Ned Roram. I'm Sarah Fishko. In part two, Roram the writer of diaries and thoughts on songs, Streisand, Sin, and Paris. That and more after a break. This is part two of An Hour with Ned Roram. I'm Sarah Fishko. Roram is a composer who writes books. Or is he a writer who composes music? His thoughts on these and other matters in the remainder of the program. In 1965, when my first diary was printed, it was a hit because it was so unusual. I'm not saying that the writing was good necessarily, but the subject matter was. And the diary format is not an American thing. It's a French thing, but it's not American and ever since then I've published 15 books and I'm not even a writer. And I've lived this parallel life then since the mid-60s, which is how long? Nearly 40 years now, 35 years, of writer and composer. From Lies, Notes on Craft, 1974, by Ned Roram. A diary, a public diary, is no more spontaneously composed than a symphony. Yes, themes may come all of a piece from the impulsive and recalcitrant muse, but they are set in gold alone or sewn together and forever revised before they're printed. That the expressive, the artistic, if you will, process can be untampered with is fallacy. Abandon takes rehearsal. Sometimes a song, a paragraph, like this one, emerges effortlessly. However it springs forth, art must seem seamless. The hero of my diary is a fictional man upon whom I've worked hard, but who has little to do with me, including the me penning this sentence, who is also the hero of my diary. People who've read my writing have usually never heard my music, and vice versa. And it's it's these two parallel schizophrenic people never quite meet. I mean, they're both inside of me, but it's answers to two different needs. And when I realized that all sorts of strangers were going to read all this stuff that I was writing in prose that was so narcissistic, I decided that uh, my music suddenly got, I'd like to think that my music got rougher and that my prose got more polished. From Roram's String Quartet, 1994.
century ever in which A, music belongs to the performer and not the composer, and that the performer plays 90% music of the past. In the past, the performer and the composer were the same person, and they played, even up to the 19th century, they played the music of the 19th century. If they played Bach, it was a curiosity, or even Beethoven. Now, Beethoven and Bach are, are not, and Chopin of the piano repertory, or 90% of it, same with the orchestra. It's very rare you even get Debussy and Ravel in orchestra programs, and the contemporary music that is played these days is pop music of one sort or another. A performer like Isak Perlman, who lives across the street, makes in one concert what I make in a year, and the three tenors making one concert what I make in a lifetime. And they do all that by playing music of the past. They fill the house on, on very standard programming. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's, that's how it is. And the You're not saying it's right or wrong? Maybe a little. W- well, the intelligentsia of America, that it's not n- particularly musical, but, but cultured. An educated person who knows all about painting will know all about Giotto and know all about Jackson Pollock. And he or she will know all about in literature, know all about Dante or the Bible and know all about uh, Philip Roth and Susan Sontag. If in music, they might know all about Vivaldi, but they, if you say, well, what about American music? They they think in terms of pop music. You liked the Beatles, though. That was then. Tell me about the Beatles a little bit. Well, in 1967, how long ago is that? A long time. In 1967... The world had been so brainwashed by Boulez and by Elliot Carter, and we were and people, so as not to be thought of as uncultured, would have to sit and listen to that music. Maybe they liked it, maybe they didn't. But it was there. It was, and along came the Beatles, and suddenly intellectuals were allowed to listen to it. And I wrote an article on them for the New York Review of Books because they asked me to. And I wrote, instead of the usual, oh, aren't they great kind of bullshit, uh, which concentrated really 90% of their words, uh, I wrote about the music. Music is music and the words are incidental. Art 
in a song comes from the music, and I thought that their music was really terrific. He's a real man. And I compared it, and I meant what I said. I compared it to Monteverdi, and I compared it to Schumann. Lenny Bernstein did the same, and some other prominent uh, classical composers all did, and suddenly they were, they were legitimate. What Beatles song first interested you in the Beatles? Was there one? There were a whole, whole lot of songs. I'm fixing a hole where the rain comes in. I'm fixing a hole. Da, 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 da. I've forgotten a lot of them, but there were a dozen or so that I thought were uh, exquisite from start to finish in every possible way. From The Beatles, 1968, by Ned Roram. Just as 20 years ago, one found oneself reading more books about Kafka than reading Kafka himself, so today one gets embarrassed at being overheard in deep discussion of the Beatles. I love them. But I love them not as symbolic layers of the scene, or whatever it's called, and even less as caricatures of themselves, which, like Mae West, they're inclined to become. I love them as the hardy, barbaric troubadours they essentially are. As such, I hope they will continue to develop, together or apart, for they represent the most invigorating music of an era so civilized that it risks extinction less from fallout than from boredom. Listening to them now, I realize that that they were kind of a one-shot deal. I was never very interested in the Rolling Stones and in the progenitors of the Beatles, and uh, I still, the pop music I still like the best is what was around when I was a kid, which was, because I was, which is Billie Holiday's essentially white repertory and the music of Cole Porter and Gershwin and Jerome Kern and I think it's terrific music and I think that the Beatles were in a way with their little baby voices coming out of that but I didn't realize it was a one-shot deal and the other people were, were spin-offs. You mean you thought it was starting a whole trend in might, American yeah. music? And it started a trend but nobody was as good as they were. I remember reading that you had said that the song had moved from the elite to people like the Beatles and Sondheim and others who were... In the middle of this century, and from the 30s until about 1960, there was a whole breed of singers, mainly female, who gave recitals. And bit by bit, management came along and said to singers, if you're going to give recitals, for God's sake, sing arias, don't sing in English... Young singers learned to sing Americans in every language except their own, and when they sang in their own language, it was filled with rolled R's and sounded very phony and still kind of does. And song then dwindled away. And now it's coming back a little bit for whatever reason. But you never stopped writing songs. That's out because I was too lazy. I was too lazy to, to do what I didn't want to do. So I didn't go over to the enemy camp the way people like David Del Tredici did, so that when they came back, they were like the prodigal son. But I was like the prodigal son's brother. I'd always been a good boy, and so no one paid any attention to me. You were never tempted by atonal music? No, because I, the music didn't mean anything to me, nothing. And I learned, the, the same as I learned Beethoven's repertory, I learned the ins and outs of, of non-tonal writing, in 1944, with Lou Harrison, who sort of took me under his wing and showed me a thing or two about uh, Oriental music and John Cage's music, he was very close to at that time, and uh, and twelve the twelve tone system, 
and that was fine, but it wasn't my language. feel strongly that all music is tonal and has a, a tonic somewhere, although it may be invisible. And I feel that all composers, from Babbitt to Boulez and Carter, hear music tonally, whether they write it that way or not. So when you say they hear it tonally... I can't prove it, but I can't help but think that they're hearing it... They might not be hearing what we hear tonally, but beneath that there's an invisible ground bass someplace. And then they might, they, they might not be consciously aware of this, and uh, I could be completely wrong, but nobody knows except God, and since God doesn't exist, it's simply something to talk about on WNYC. <laughs> <laughs> From Roram's Piano Concerto for Left Hand and Orchestra, 1991. You're listening to An Hour with Ned Roram on WNYC. Did you ever think that you might, as as you were a songwriter and songs were moving in this more popular direction, did it ever occur to you to write in a more it's popular It's not the same band? thing. People always say, you know, you write such divine songs, do a Broadway show. It's not the same thing at all. At the Y, I did a series of hostings for composers and Sondheim was one of my guests so we talked about this question what is the difference between a musical and an opera and he was I felt that he was wrong and I was right he said that it has to do with the venue if it's, if Sweeney Todd's performed at the Met it's an opera if it's performed at Broadway it's a musical it has to do with a singer Angela Lansbury can certainly sing Sweeney Todd but she can't sing Mozart Barbara Streisand tried and failed embarrassingly by doing a, what was called classical. I remember classical yeah. Barbara. Yeah. Pop music and classical music, they're two different genres. It's not embarrassing, but it it's, doesn't uh, break any... Uh, but the two things are not interchangeable. They're, my songs are songs, and they are written for trained voices. The kind of texts that go into pop songs, which are far more restricted, not that they're any worse or better, but they're very restricted. Even the text between French pop songs and American pop songs are different. A French pop song by Piaf, for example, whom I love. And many of them are in 3-4 time, playing like accordion music is played in the streets of Paris in the old days. And they tell a story. I loved him. He didn't love me. I killed him. As he lay dead on the floor, I was 
arrested and now I'm sitting in prison and tomorrow I'm going to be guillotined. But do I mind? I do not because in heaven I will meet my love again. So it goes from point A to Z. An American song is, uh, I'm in love, nobody loves me, but I'm in love, nobody loves me. It goes on for hours. Even with Gershwin songs, it's not storytelling. I'm not going to write a Broadway musical. I don't know how. And I don't have that unless somebody gave me an awful lot of money. If they had that kind of money to throw away, they would ask me to write an opera rather than rather than a Broadway musical. Or a huge song cycle. Or I've written a lot of huge song cycles with and without orchestra or instruments. I'm writing one right now for Ravinia. It's called Aftermath, and it has to do with the September 11th business. And the texts, of which there are 10, are on sort of love, but mainly war. I don't necessarily believe that writing out of the passion of the moment means anything, but every one of us thinks daily about the situation of September 11th, and my first reactions were the same as everybody else. Where does art fit into all of this? That goes on for about a week, and then you say, art, there is nothing except art. Evidence of Things Not Seen is one of your big song songs. Yeah, I'm very proud of that. But uh, it's easy to be proud of something when half the work is done by great poets. Anyway, uh, I did unite 36 different texts, I think it is, in Evidence of Things Not Seen. And there are trios, solos, duets, and a few quartets. And every singer gets his 15 minutes. And the whole thing takes about an hour and 40 minutes.
we haven't really talked about your time in Paris, which was an interesting time to be in Paris. Well, I wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. Called The Paris Diary. My only claim to fame is that Madonna made a movie called Truth or Dare. It's a documentary about her on a road trip. And she sits down in her uh, dressing room at one point all by herself instead of being surrounded by a million people, picks up a book, and it's my Paris diary. Uh, and I didn't believe it when people told me, but so everyone took Polaroids and sent them to me. But now it's downhill all the way for me that Madonna has immortalized me. And if I meet her, we can, uh, which I, and I kind of like her, I, I do. There's something likable about her. Oh, I hope you will. I, I'd love to be there for that. Well, I, if I, she was at a party or something, I wouldn't hesitate going up and saying hi. Hi, that was my book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paris, I don't know. I went to Paris as a child with my mother and father, but then I went back the way we all did after the war when I was 24. I didn't become French because I went to Paris. I was French, so I went home to a home that I'd never been to, so to speak. I was back in France for the first time in 18 years a couple of months ago. Nothing is happening in France. America, with all of its unthinkable vulgarity, is still the most interesting country artistically in the world today, with England thrown in for good measure. Anyway, there, there is Paris, but that's another Ned and it's another time. Roram's Paris Then, written in 1981. Your piece, Air Music, won the Pulitzer Prize. And it gets done never. Did it affect you at all, winning the Pulitzer Prize? Did it change your life? Did it? Yeah, I loved it. Since I was a public sinner, I figured I would never get any of these standard American prizes. But when I got the Pulitzer Prize, I thought somebody had made a mistake. If I die in a whorehouse, it'll still say Ned Roram. Pulitzer Prize winner Ned Roram died in a whorehouse. But it's always accompanied with Pulitzer Prize, no matter what. And it's got a lot of cachet. I felt terribly good about it in the sense that I had to be taken seriously. From Roram's Pulitzer Prize winning Air Music, 1974.
I'm at a stage now where I've said everything I have to say. I truly think that. But then who knows? If I work now, it's because I'm commissioned to do it, and there are people who depend on it, and I have deadlines. But I don't have the same uh, horny urge to express myself. And almost all the people I know over 60 agree. That doesn't mean they're not better than they ever were. You said that you... You don't really want to write anything that isn't that you're not commissioned to write at the moment. But is there anything that you wish somebody would commission? I mean, <laughs> is, do you have any any pull in any particular direction at this point? If I really wanted to write an opera, I suppose I could. It would be arranged. But it's a great big project. What's easiest is to write songs, not even with fancy accompaniments. I'm doing one now with cello, violin, and piano. It, but I'd rather do it with just piano. I've had the satisfaction of hearing all of my orchestra things and operas and everything, but what I feel most at home with and always have is this voice and piano. I suppose I could be satisfied with that for the rest of my life. Good heavens. I mean, a lot of people know one song of mine, only one, early in the morning. If I'm judged by that one song, so be it. I can't be judged by everything I've... Even myself, everyone can't know everything that one has done. Nor do I think that an artist has can talk about himself that much. He can talk about himself, but not about not not about his art, because he's already said it all. Or she. You've been listening to an hour with Ned Roram. Technical director for the program was Edward Haber. Special thanks goes to Michael Elsesser. I was producer and host. I'm Sarah Fishko. I don't think that everybody has to love music. 
and it'll never be money-making in the same way that the other arts are. But, uh, but give it a chance. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. The preceding program was made possible by a grant from the Kaplan Foundation.